passage here and see where it leads us. Matthew chapter 22, starting at verse 15 through 22. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him, talking about Jesus, in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. Well, they brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Taxes. Everybody hates taxes. We hate it even more every time taxes are raised, especially when we think that some of our taxes are being used for things that we don't agree with or absolutely oppose. However, as one person said, we are all aware of the proverbial inevitability of death and taxes. It's going to be there. Taxes, to a certain degree, though, are necessary. We, we, we understand that because there are a lot of services that we benefit from, from our government as we pay our taxes, including the roads we drive on, the, the, uh, the police officers and the firefighters that, that uh, protect us. There's a lot of other services as well. But taxation was a huge issue of discussion among those living in Israel during the time of Jesus. Hence the discussion we're going to be looking at here in a moment. Now remember, this is this, we're still in the final week of Jesus, the final Wednesday. We're still on that Wednesday. There's a lot of stuff that happens on that particular day. In the last day, week of Jesus' life, he's been in the temple each day teaching and preaching and, and uh, ministering uh, the gospel of the kingdom. And as always, he's gathered this large crowd around him that are just fascinated with the authority that he's speaking with and what he is saying and what he is teaching. And all of this makes the religious leaders furious. And they resent Jesus. They resent him because he opposes them. He unmasks their pride, their self-righteousness, their hypocrisy over and over again. They resent him because he captures the heart of the people And the envy and jealousy just dominates them. It's eating away at their hearts. They resent him because he claims to be the Messiah, the Son of God. This this is blasphemy as far as they're concerned. They resent him because he cleansed the table without asking their permission. He is everything they are not. He's genuine. They're hypocrites. He threatens their system of self-righteousness as opposed to God's righteousness. A system of works as opposed to the system of faith. And so they stop him in the process of his teaching. They, they interrupt him, ask him, by what authority do you do these things? And then they try to trick him into saying something which uh, they could use then to arrest him and, and put it into it completely. But rather than falling into their trap, and we've looked at this over the past few Sundays, he tells them three parables, all of which speak judgment upon them as the religious leaders, and they knew that he was talking about them. 
And each one he condemned them for not honoring God, for not listening to God's servants who came with a message of repentance, and for being outright hostile to them by killing them, and eventually killing God's Son as well. And because of that, God's own people would be cast out into darkness. And the invitation to the kingdom, we looked at that last week, would then be given to another people, a people who would then be grateful and would honor God and His Son. So three parables of judgment, the main same message in all three of them. You're going to be kept out of the kingdom of God, and others are going to come in and take your place. And giving these three parables back to back with the same message signifies a completeness, a finality. This is going to happen. And as we know, the judgment did come. So the plan for them was to try to convince the people, the plan for the Pharisee, try to convince the multitude, the people that were uh, being encouraged by Jesus, that Jesus was actually a rabble-rouser, he's a troublemaker, he's a revolutionary, he's an insurrectionist. Now how are they going to do that? Well, once again, as they did previously, they scurried off to the corner and they huddled up uh, to come up with some kind of a plan. So what did they come up with and how did it work out for them? Well, we find the purpose of their plan in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. That was a plan. Trap him in his words. Literally, how they might entangle him in a logos, in a statement. They wanted to trap him, to ensnare ensnare him. That's their aim. That's their focus. That's what they want to accomplish here. Why? Because Jesus had publicly embarrassed them and discredited them in front of all these people and by speaking these parables of judgment against them, and their anger was mounting because, as one author put it, unrighteousness that masquerades as righteousness always hates true righteousness. Unrighteousness that masquerades as righteousness always hates true righteousness. Folks, this was a crucial moment a crucial moment, a critical moment, a pivotal moment in the history of Israel. As a make or break time, they could have turned it all around at that moment. Over the past four to 6,000 years since the time of creation, there were a number of these critical moments when the people of Israel had turned away from God, had rebelled against God, had become disobedient to God, but God in His magnanimous grace and mercy sent them prophets to call them back. And there were some amazing kings, such as King Josiah in Second Chronicles chapter 34, who turned God away from his anger, turned God away from his judgment, because all of Israel then repented. But they kept turning away. They kept turning away over and over again. And God kept calling them back. He kept calling them back. And Israel kept killing his messengers, kept killing his prophets. And now that the sun was here, just like the parable of the vineyard, they huddled off to the side and laid plans to kill the sun as well. What a sad, sad day for Israel. Little did they know that this was their last chance. The religious leaders that day could have repented. They could have repented, and I believe God would have turned away from His anger once again. No, they concocted a plan to try to trap him in his words. And we see the strategy in verse 16. They sent their disciples to him. Really? 
They had disciples? Absolutely. Young Pharisees in training. You'll remember that the Apostle Paul was a disciple of Pharisees. Uh, the, the greatest Pharisee of all time, uh, Gamaliel, was his tutor. And so he was a disciple of Gamaliel as, uh, as uh, Saul, later to be known as Paul, um, grew up in the Pharisee situation. So why did they, they the Pharisees, send their disciples? Well, I think it was because they themselves had already been revealed as, um, as fake and hypocritical. That had been told to, told to the people over and over. But if they sent their young disciples, these young guys who, are, who want to learn, if they sent them, and, and Jesus might see this as a great teaching moment and be more gracious and more open, and perhaps they could catch Jesus off guard with these young guys that came to him. So they were being sent into masquerade as very honest questioners, very honest disciples. I mean, being disciples, after all, they wanted to learn uh, from the great, a great teacher like, like Jesus. What, what better moment would there be? So they're going to try to fool Jesus into a trap here. And then it says, they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Why the Herodians? What's that all about? Well, the Herodians were government agents under Herod. Herod, Herodians, okay? They were part of the Roman government. So the Pharisees send them along as spies. In fact, if you read this in the Gospel of Luke, he calls them spies. Because a man with his power, the power that Jesus had and his influence, uh, making anti-Roman statements would really be a threat to the Roman system because to them, then he would be an insurrectionist. So the Herodians would run and report this incident back to Herod, back to the government. The Romans would come and arrest him and kill him, and they'd be done with him. Perfect plan. So you may ask, well, why did the Herodians cooperate? Because it was well known that the Herodians and the Jewish leaders hated each other. They had no use for each other. But they had basically a common enemy. The Herodians, they cooperated because they didn't like Jesus either. You remember it was Herod Antipas who had cut off the head of Jesus' forerunner, John the Baptist, because John the Baptist uh, put his evil life out in the public. So we come back to verse 16 and we see the approach. The disciples of the Pharisees, along with the Herodians, they come. Teacher, they said. They start by laying, laying it on thick here, okay? G- giving him this great, great title. Master teacher. Teacher, a word used of, of one who teaches concerning the things of God, the duties of man. So they're coming to him as, as an authority. It was probably the highest honor you could, you could pay a man at that time. Master teacher, one who knows and understands and teaches the wondrous things of God to those, uh, to those of us who are just trying to learn from the greatest. And then they say, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Now, I'm sure they came with a feigned attitude of super humility and, and, and subservience here. Master teacher, you, know, you always are truthful and full of, full of wisdom and integrity. You, uh, we, we know that you speak the truth, and, and uh, you, you speak the truth because we know you believe that, that it's true. What an honor it is to humbly come before you and learn from you. All this integrity, and we know you speak the truth because you teach the way God of God in accordance with the truth. It's almost sickening the way they're trying to, <laughs> trying to uh, suck up to him here. What is the way of God 
that they were talking about. Well, it's actually the opposite way that appears right to a man but ends in death. It's a way that God ordains. It's the right way, the way that leads to righteousness. And not only do you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth, you aren't swayed by others, they say to him, because you pay no no attention to who they are. So we're on your side. You're a man of integrity. You teach the truth. You aren't swayed by public opinion because you know what you say is true. So we just want to learn from you, oh great and wonderful teacher. You know what's ironic? Everything they said about him was absolutely true. But they didn't believe a word of it. See, they were just trying to flatter him. Which, by the way, is strongly condemned in Scripture. If you look at Psalm 12, 2 and 3, they speak falsehood to one another with flattering lips and with a double, double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. God hates that. That's exactly what they were doing, trying to work on Jesus' ego, trying to catch Jesus through pride. That was their approach, and the aim was to trap him in a statement. The approach was to flatter him. And that leads thoroughly to their attack. Here's the question. Verse 17, very interesting. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Since you're so wide and you're, you're full of integrity and, and you're, you're a wonderful truth-sayer, what's your opinion? We, we want to know what your opinion is. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now, it's a very simple question, one they've thought about for a long time, but it's very delicate. The word used here for imperial tax was a word, kainsos which comes from the Latin word census. They were asking, should we pay the census tax? That was a very specific tax. The Romans counted all the people, and they attached an individual tax to everybody. Each year, every individual had to pay the census tax. It was kind of like a poll tax. It was a personal tax on an individual that went then to the Roman government. And the amount of that tax was one denarius. A denarius was one day's wage. And that's what was required. Now, this did not sit well with the Jewish people. This was a contention for years with them. This had been a a horrible topic for a long time. And it, it may have been that they felt that this individual census tax was the most offensive of all the taxes Because they could see the property tax, which they had to pay. They could understand the income tax, which they had to pay. They could understand the business tax, which they had to pay. But this census tax, and it's all going to Rome, since Rome did provide these services. But as individuals, they, the Jewish people, they belonged to God. They didn't belong to Rome. And so the most galling of all the taxes was this particular census tax, the individual tax upon them. It was a huge issue for these people. And that's why they brought this particular question to Jesus with the Herodians present to listen to his response. See, if Jesus says, you've got to pay the tax, he's going to have the whole multitude that were so supportive of him turn against him. Because this would be an anti-Jewish statement. They'd become angry. Now, they were pretty sure that's probably not what Jesus would say because that would be paying tribute to someone other than God. On the other hand, if he said, no, you you shouldn't pay those taxes, 
then he'd look like an insurrectionist to the Romans, to those Herodians standing there. And they would run and report it to, uh, to Herod, and he'd get arrested, lose his life. They got him. So finally got him between a hard, and a hard place and a rock. Rock and a hard place. So the question is very important, very delicate question. Now watch what happens in verse 18. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, Jesus knows everything, knowing their evil intent, he said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? See, he knew their hearts. He knew their motives. He was never taken in by all that flattery. You remember the flattery, teacher, you know everything, you're a wonderful integrity, a teacher of integrity, and, and we just want to come and learn from you, oh great master. And he just proved them right. You don't pay attention to anybody else. That's right, he didn't. What did he call them? He said, you hypocrites. He called them out immediately. Why are you trying to trap me? He didn't care who they were or who their tutors were. He knew their hearts, he knew their motives, and they were evil. So he flipped the tables on them. Show me a coin used for paying the tax, he said in verse 19. And they brought him a denarius. You know, I, I can imagine, boy, they all dug in their pockets as quick as they could. They probably had one handy there to, to hand to him. They were so excited. <laughs> he, he, he fell for the trap. Uh, watch what happens now. So Jesus, the master teacher, takes a coin in his hand as an illustration. And I, I, I would have, it would have probably been a silver coin minted by the emperor because only the emperor could mint silver and gold. The Roman Senate could mint copper, but it was only the emperors could mint silver and gold. So any silver coin would reflect the image of Caesar, whichever Caesar happened to be in power at that time. It would not only have his image, but it would have some kind of writing identifying him. So Jesus takes the coin and asks, where is the icon and epigraphe? Whose image is this and whose inscription? Whose image and inscription is on the coin? Boy, they were ready for an answer. Caesar's, they replied. Probably all in unison. One, two, three. <laughs> they were so eager, and, that, and it was true. His face was on there. His name was on there. Now, a denarius from the time of Tiberius, for example, had, had on one side the image of Tiberius' face. On the other, it had him sitting on a throne with high priestly robes, and it had a crown on his head, and it identified Tiberius with an inscription that said, Maxim Pontiff, Chief High Priest. Isn't that interesting? So the coinage was more than secular it was religious. And the emperors not only believed they were high priests, but some of them actually believed that they were gods. In fact, Christians were, were killed in the Roman persecution of the church because they failed to worship the emperor. Emperor worship was part of the Roman culture. So every time a Jew had in his hand one of those denarii with the image of Tiberius on it, it was the recognition that he held in his hand a little idol, a false idol, a false god. So they hated that coin. That's another reason paying this particular tax was so egregious to them. They had to pay with that coin. They had to take their own Hebrew, uh, Hebrew money and they had to convert it into that coin. Give it to Rome, and that was offensive to them. And it galled them to have to give to some false god what belonged to the true God. 
So you see how delicate the situation is here for Jesus. And they're waiting with bated breath to hear his answer. They can't wait. The Herodians on the Roman side, the Pharisees on the Jewish side. One way or another, they've got him in the crosshairs. So he says, whose image? They say Caesar's. Listen to what he says. So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. To God what is God's. The word Jesus uses here to give back is, is interesting. The Greek word is apadidomi, to pay back, to give back. It refers to an obligation, to a responsibility. It's not something you have a choice about. He's basically saying, pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. It's the price we pay for the services that a government provides. So he says, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, but the second half that, that, uh, of that verse is what I want to dwell on a little bit here this morning. And to God, what is God's? Besides the taxes that Caesar was asking for, what else was he asking for that only God deserved? Worship. Caesar was asking for worship. He's saying you can and should pay your taxes, but do not get sucked into giving him any kind of worship. That's the issue. Jesus is making an amazing hair-splitting statement here. You give the system what the system can demand of you, and what they can demand is social and economic. But there is another kingdom What it cannot demand, that kingdom, is spiritual and religious. When Jesus said, give back to Caesar what is Caesar, he was drawing a sharp distinction between two kingdoms. The kingdom of this world, Caesar's world, and the power that he holds, but there is another kingdom not of this world. That's, uh, that's, uh, and Jesus is a king of that world. It's a spiritual world. It's the kingdom of God. John 18.36, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, which means it is of that world. His is a heavenly kingdom. His is a spiritual kingdom. And we as Christians are part of both kingdoms, at least temporarily, because we are living here in the world. Under Caesar or under the government, we have certain obligations that that involve material things. But under Christ, we have other obligations that involve things that are eternal. If Caesar demands money, give it to him. It's only temporal. It only belongs to this world anyway. It has no eternal value. But we need to make sure that we also give God what he demands. Caesar minted coins as he had a right to do, and his image was stamped on what he had made. What's interesting is that God has minted human souls. And he has stamped his image on every one of them. All the way back in Genesis chapter 1, 27 tells us that God created mankind. How? In his own image. So we need to make sure to give God his due. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, verse 13, to offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as instruments of righteousness. So what does God want from all of us? What is he most passionate about when it comes to our life? And the answer is basically he wants us to desire him most of all. 
He wants that relationship to love him with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. He wants us to be his holy people. God is passionate about having a holy people who will worship him and give him glory. God works within his people to make them holy. We've talked about this a number of times. It's God's work through the Holy Spirit. And our righteousness is not based on anything we do. If it was, it would then become what? (laughs) Self-righteousness. And we saw last week that self, self-righteousness was a wrong garment to be wearing as you enter the Feast of the Lamb. You see, it's only by giving our lives to Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit can work in our lives and to purify us and then clothe us with Christ's righteousness. But what does God require of us? Give to God what is God's. What is that God requires of His people? Yes, He wants us to be holy. But what does He expect from us? The prophecy or the book of Micah in the Old Testament is a fascinating short book. It's a summary of God's faithfulness to His people Israel. And it's also God's legal dispute against His people because they kept being unfaithful, they kept being disobedient. And in that legal dispute, it then compelled the people of Israel to respond back to God. And Micah asks, what then does he, God, require of us? What are we supposed to do? Maybe you've wondered that from time to time. What am I supposed to do to have God's favor? How can I come into the presence of God Almighty? This is the heart of the question that Micah asked in chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. He poses a number of questions with, What shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of uh, olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. With what shall I come before the Lord? This is a question for all people of every age. Some people think that you know, God's favor, perhaps a lot like our own favor, can, can be bought or earned. You know, If somebody does something really nice for me, I, I owe them one, right? And so I'm going to return the favor because they have done something for me. If that's our mindset, it's easy then to believe that we can offer God fake sacrifices or meaningless worship when what He asks of us is our loving and obedient hearts. What God demands of us is not some empty ritual of playing church every Sunday and then living like the world the rest of the week. God desires holiness in our lives. He desires heartfelt obedience to Him, to His Word, and not a fake religious appearance that looks like holiness, but is not. God is interested in our hearts, not the outward expression only of our worship. Verses 6 and 7 that we read give us a list of rhetorical questions that exposes the absurdity of Israel's dependence on empty ritual and sacrifice to earn God's favor. These are the kind of things they thought they could do. 
But what does God want from His people? Are sacrifices what He wants? Would even sacrificing one child be enough to cover one's sin, to make one right with God? And the way in which these questions increase in absurdity shows that Micah is exposing Israel's wrong attitude that their sacrifices could be an entry fee to the kingdom of God. Israel had been dependent on going through the motions of religion and missing the point of true worship of God. So many churchgoers today, I think, do the same thing. Their focus is on doing the right things, trying to impress other people, showing people what a good Christian they are. And that's exactly what Jesus was pointing out to all the religious leaders of his time. He was calling out their hypocrisy. It's all outward, and there was no real heart change that would lead to a life life change, a life transformation. What the Lord really wants is not our offerings, but the allegiance and the obedience of the offerers. God desires a relationship with his people, not a religion of empty worship. The Israelites would offer everything, even what God forbade, the sacrifice of their children. Everything except what He really desired, their love and obedience. Verse 8 in Micah's reply, chapter 6, to the question of the previous two verses, is probably the best-known statement in the whole book of Micah. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy or kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Again, God does not desire meaningless worship. He does not want His people to merely go through the motions of doing church. God's answer to what He requires for us is threefold, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. To act justly, to do what is right, It's important. It doesn't mean talking about justice, talking about what's right, or making sure other people are doing what's right. It means to do the right things ourselves. We need to apply that to ourselves. God's Word calls us to to inspect our own lives and for us to do what is right. The psalmist says in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's what God wants. One commentator wrote that the word justly has here the sense of true religion. In John chapter 4, 23, it says, Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. That can only happen in a transformed life, a life that the Holy Spirit has gotten a hold of and has changed and filled and uh, with a desire to walk rightly with the Lord. In view of God's mercy, Paul says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's the only way that we'll be able to do what's right in God's eyes. Because now, it's the Holy Spirit that's working in and through us. This comes back to the greatest commandment, doesn't it? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. What else does God require of us? 
to love mercy. To love mercy is to freely and willingly show kindness to others. We are to show constant love to others. That's the second greatest commandment, isn't it? Love your neighbor as yourself. First and second commandment right there. In verses 3 through 5 there in Micah chapter 6, God had accused His people of failing in their covenant obligations to Him. To show constant love refers, first of all, to our loyalty to God and then our love uh, and love, loving Him faithfully, and then that translates into loving others as well. Because that's the obvious way by which we show our relationship with God. Jesus told His disciples that it was by their love for one another that the world would know that they were His disciples. That's still true for us today. If we love one another, the world will know that we are disciples of Jesus. If we do not love one another or are not willing to demonstrate that love for one another at whatever cost, then what does that say about us and our relationship with God? There's one more thing that Micah says that God requires of us, to walk humbly with God. The expression to walk humbly with God means to live in conscious fellowship with God, exercising a spirit of humility before Him. It's a sense of not insisting on one's own way, but doing what God desires, walking humbly with Him. This, this can be really difficult sometimes, can it? Because our nature, our normal human sinful nature, wants what it wants and does what it wants to do. How many conflicts in church all across the, 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 the world over the eons, how many conflicts have been a result of people wanting what they want? I've heard churches split over the color of carpet or the, the type of chairs. We must be very careful to live the way God wants us to live, to live humbly, to live faithfully, to live obediently to our Father in heaven, and to love the Lord with all of our hearts. The point that Micah is making is that the outward forms of religion, the outward worship, the service that we render, the kindness and love that we show should all reflect the inner relationship that we have in God. Justice, love, faithfulness are essential qualities of the Christian life. We must do these to do what God requires of us. However, listen carefully. Micah is not saying that by doing all these things, by doing what's right, by loving faithfully, by living our lives in the way that we think God wants us to live, will save us or make us right with Him. The gospel is still true. Jesus Christ is still our Savior. And it is still through Him and only through Him that we are declared right and just before God. What Micah wrote here should be the natural consequence of people who have been saved by the grace of God and have forgiven their sin. And treating one another fairly, loving each other faithfully, and doing the things that God desires should merely be a natural outflow of our relationship with God. So maybe the question we should ask ourselves this morning is do we see evidence of a life changing faith in my life? Are we holding on to resentment or or unforgiveness towards someone? Are we refusing to admit 
ask forgiveness for and turning away from a sin that perhaps we're trying to hide from everybody else, including God? Do we show mercy and grace to others just as God has shown to us? Are we willing to do whatever is necessary to be at peace with one another as far as it depends upon us? What God desires of us, what He demands of us, is a heartfelt obedience and love to Him and to one another. Two two greatest commandments. Where we may have failed to do that, we need to humbly come before Him and pray for forgiveness and change. And He will be faithful and He will forgive and renew and purify. God's not interested in meaningless worship, but rather He desires a humble, loving, and obedient people to be His church, and then we worship Him through that. Are we willing to do that? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, this morning... We thank you so much for what you accomplished for us. And it's so easy in our natural selves to, to kind of slide away from focusing on you and worshiping you and loving you in, with our whole being, knowing that the consequence of loving you is, is joy, is fulfillment, it's, it's uh, direction, it's, it's protection. But we forget sometimes, and we, we start depending on ourselves and, and realize sometimes too late that, that we've depended on ourselves too, too long, and, and we end up doing things that end up being displeasing to you. Father, if there is someone, whether it's here in the sanctuary, someone that, that is listening on Facebook this morning, if, if you are working in someone's life, Father, I pray that you would speak very strongly. Bring conviction where conviction is needed. Bring encouragement where encouragement is needed. And Father, as forgiveness is asked, we know because you promise it that you will pour out your forgiveness and your, your purity upon each one. Father, I pray that you will work a new work in our church here at Sio Community Church and that we would be faithful to you, that we would walk justly, that we would love mercy and walk humbly before you, asking for you to direct us and be willing to do whatever you want us to do. Father, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.